What time is it? Welcome in, everybody. It's the 237 Podcast. Back again. Got a full table here. Steve Birchall on my right. Morning. Matt Aragon. Good morning, everybody. Rob Webster. Hi, all. Producer Scott Dean. Hello. And special guest for today, uh, we got Jim Aragon. This is uh, Matt's father, correct? Hey, good morning, good morning. All right. Well, we got a good show for you here today. We're going to be talking about... Um, we're, we're, we're going to be kind of continuing on with last week's discussion and discussing the uh, the war on drugs, kind of focusing on especially an American-centric uh, when it kind of first started, because there was actually a time when um, you could just wander into a pharmacy and buy cocaine over the over the counter, and nobody thought anything of it. Uh, you know, the, the idea that uh, drugs are illegal substances is something that really, at least in this country, only goes back about 100 years. Uh, so we're going to talk about that, how it came to be, what the reasons for was it, what, you know, what, what were the positive aspects of it, what were the negative aspects of it, and uh, where we're at with it today. But before we get into all that, first we're going to jump over to uh, Steve's corner of uh, sanity and see what he's up to this week. Steve's corner. What are you looking at, Steve? We're going to talk about the very thrush a little migrating songbird that spends a lot of time up in Maryland and parts of North Carolina and along the East Coast. Okay, so the bird is called Veery Thrush, and it's just, uh, I mean, what what's special about it when, when you look at it? How can you identify one? It's just a little brown songbird. Just kind you, of a... The average person probably isn't going di- to identify one. Just gets grouped in with all the other yeah. little little yep. songbirds, little, yep. little brown bird fit in the palm of your hand kind of thing. Yep. But oh. there are people who do uh, study them. That, well, yeah, there's and, people who study everything. Yep. And we found that out. And uh, these little suckers make a 4,000-mile trek twice a year. They're migratory. So yep. they're going from, from uh, North America to South America, yeah, they ended up putting trackers. They caught some and put some trackers on them and found out that they were flying all the way down to uh, the bottom of Brazil. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, yeah, I mean, first of all, it, like we were saying, there are people who study everything. It's one of the things when people talk about, like, oh, uh, well, a- maybe aliens find us so unsophisticated and uninteresting that they, they wouldn't even be bothered to look in, uh, look at us or study us or anything. Um, but one of, one of my favorite comebacks to that is always like, dude, there's people who study beetles. There's people who study anything, anything to do with biology. There's gotta be, there's going to be one person who's fascinated with it. Well, and it's, here's, here's a, a, a thing about that. You're equating human. Oh, sure. To, to an alien's agenda. Right. You know? But it's more about, yeah, agenda, but I'm talking about more about just a sense of curiosity. I mean, I guess I just assume you're, anything you're still, that's... You're still putting the human curiosity sure. on, on what aliens think. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's human-centric, but I, I also think um, uh, there are other animals that show signs of curiosity as well. I mean, uh, uh, other mm-hmm. conscious things here Dolph- on Earth. Dolphins do. Earthly, well, yeah, I mean, octopiers. Octopuses. Well, we just watched <laughs> Layla and the bug. Yeah, I mean, exactly. Dogs will come check out noises or check out smells or... So, I mean, that's, I don't know. I guess I just, know if it's food. Yeah, that's right. So do we. <laughs> I guess I just feel like anything alive, part of what it is to be conscious is to to want to solve puzzles and study things and to know what isn't already known. I mean, I guess you could say like, oh, they already know everything, but I don't know. I, I don't really like that. I, I just, I like the idea that even if, even if we are just ants to whatever else is above us, and there's probably levels to this thing too, right? Sure. So, I don't know. That, that, that's just kind of where I'm at with that. But either way, birds especially, there are a lot of people that are obsessed with birds. Bird watching is like a really big deal. Um, orna, ornithologists, there, there's the entire like scientific discipline of studying birds. Um, so, what, what is this guy? What, this guy likes the veery thrush. He's chosen that as his songbird for whatever reason. 
and he's up in like um, where? What part of the country is he? God, I'm trying to remember now. I, I want to say it was uh, Virginia. No, it's no, it was farther north, Delaware. Delaware. It was farther north than that. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Researcher out of Delaware. I'm trying to remember the guy's name. I've got his article here um, where he published his scientific paper. It's uh, Christopher M. Hexner out of Delaware. So anyway. Um, well, it's, the, the reason it ended up on this podcast is because he's been studying them since 99. And he noticed every few years that uh, they break the season short by two weeks to a month and head home. And eventually he started trying to look at the correlation. What, what was causing this? And the correlation was a hurricane season. They knew months in advance when we were going to have a rough hurricane season on the East Coast because they got to fly through this thing. Yeah. You know? And, and how do they know? So these, these are migratory birds, and they, most animals have a pattern of behavior that they repeat constantly uh, throughout their lifetimes and throughout from generation to generation. They right. tend to not break with that, uh, that behavior unless there's some environmental reason why they, they have to break from that behavior for like a survival standpoint. So this guy, he's like, he's catching these birds. He sets up like nets kind of in between where they're migrating from and where they're going to. And as soon as they start to leave, and didn't he say too, that he would find from like year to year, he would find literally the identical same bird in the same tree returning from South America or Brazil, wherever. Yeah. Yeah. So they're that, they're that repetitive and, and constant with their behaviors. And yet they vary in the time of the year when they leave. Yeah. When they, when they, uh, they kind of cut their breeding short. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, the big question is, is I guess the big question that we all want to answer is, how do these birds know months in advance of hurricanes? You know, do they have barometric pressure barometers in their head? Well, they're, yeah. You know, what, what, what's going on? But they pre- they predict the hurricane season with the, the, the times in which they leave. Their predictors of the hurricane season are even more accurate than, than the computer weather. models that are forecasting it for advance for that season as well. Right. Yeah, so that that's the odd is that you know the, the the birds see it before the meteorology sees it. The science doesn't see it, but the bird somehow knows it and sees it. Well, and the birds were what hundred percent accurate. No, well, it's they they're like 10 so okay. They the the time when they migrate across the Atlantic Ocean is peak hurricane season when there is a very active hurricane season. Of course, some years you have a lot of very active hurricane season, other years you don't. Right. So, they when they're travel they know that they have to go through this area in august and hurricanes are very bad for small migratory songbirds crossing the ocean they really aren't built to swim or to swim to fly against uh heavy winds and they get blown out that most of the time when they die there's something like a 80 percent higher chance of more of a death rate when they are traveling versus when they're living their normal like sedentary tree life so this is by far their most dangerous part of their life, and it's coming right after the other most important part of their life, which is the mating season. The um, when, when they when they have their, uh, I learned a new word from reading this paper. It was clutch. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the clutch. Mm-hmm. Apparently, yeah. that's like a, like a technical term for just one cycle of laying eggs, and you can you've got so that's the clutch, and you've got clutch size. How many eggs per? And some some birds have multiple clutches in a year. These can have multiple, but in the years when the hurricane season is active, they will only have one, and they will end their breeding season sh- like two months short of yeah. where it would normally be, yeah. and travel. Um, that two or it, so, so they know this, like you were saying, several months in advance, and their clutch size is smaller, and their, their clutch size is smaller, and they only have one in years where the hurricanes are, are very active. And the yeah. breeding season ends so that they don't run the risk of having another clutch 
in transit. Yeah, yeah so that they yeah, can they're get, very conscious about it and proactive about it. They're yes. very yeah, they're very yeah, so it, and you know, you can say that they're comparing their ability based off of the, their behavior using that as a prediction model and putting it up against the best meteorologists that we have when they do their reports um, at that same time of year, the birds are something like 10% more accurate on average. And this is over a 20 year span. It's like 1998 to the time when he published this peer reviewed scientific paper in 2018. So he had 20 years of data when he came out and put this out. Well, in every year when they left early, we had a very active heavy, hurricane heavy and season. Active hurricane yeah. seasons. Yeah. Anytime the birds and the scientists were on the same page, it was pretty much 100% accurate, which is, I think, what you were remembering. Right. When the birds and the, t- the scientists disagree, the birds almost always win. Um, right. per- well, I, as far as I know, every, every time that the, the science has said that it's going to be a, a inactive or, or super active and the birds said something else, the birds ended up being correct. Yeah, they were right. But just in terms of like putting all the data out there, uh, they were it was something like ten percent more accurate. But the weird thing is, you know, you're saying, okay, do they have? Are they detecting barometric pressure or uh, something to do with minor fluctuations in temperature or something to do with electromagnetic fields? Or because we know birds know how to fly yeah, in magnetic certain, north, yeah, or whatever, yeah. So they can they know what direction they're flying in without necessarily having they have like compasses kind of like built in, but the question is okay that's fine if that's the case that's how they're doing it, but we have all we have instruments to measure all that stuff right and we've been doing it I mean since since the dawn of man how long have we been trying to predict the weather mm-hmm. we we've been at this a while and it's like okay we've got all this sophisticated technology. We've got spreadsheets with years of data. We're, you know, we're a species who's very sophisticated, like intellectually and technologically. And meanwhile, you've got this little bird with the brain the size of a fucking walnut. And they're outsmarting us. So even regardless of how they're doing it, the fact that it's even possible for this simple little creature to read how i mean again like i don't even have do you guys even have like a speculation of how they're doing it because i don't i'm at a loss on this one i don't know I yeah don't know. i mean i think they're tapped into something that we just don't understand right and, and not that they actually sit there and think about it not that they have the council of the uh, council of the very yeah that's right you know, Rob, where, where, where are you at? Over you're, the long coats. You're the one that's always good about pushing back when when we start talking. Um, jeez, I, I have no clue. You know, there are. I don't think the human race is uh, is as knowledgeable and as uh, as uh, as advanced as we actually think we are. Maybe they're tapped into those random number generators. They're, well, they're, the the point is they're not they're not analyzing. Mm-hmm. They're just acting. They're it's, they're it's acting sur- on instinct. It's a survival instinct. Yeah, uh, yeah. It's a, it's a, yeah. It's just a knowledge and a, or going to call it a knowledge, I guess, a, a, a basis of something that they know. If they don't leave early, they're more than likely the vast majority of them are not going to make it. But these storm systems yeah. have uh, they uh, haven't even, even had developed. time to form. No, they're, they're not even there's developed nothing even studied. No, right. there's nothing even developed how, in the, off how, the coast of Africa. How, how about this? How, how long have these thrushes, in particular, how long have they been around? Oh my gosh! Um, I mean, hundreds of thousands yeah, of years, probably. probably. Probably, yeah. Is, now, now, do you think that them being around that long and actually figuring something out? They're in tune to something. But the yeah, problem is you know we've been I mean? around that long, too, and we haven't figured it out. I mean, but you think about the individual intelligence of one of these creatures. What this tells me. Well, wait a minute. We have figured out. We've had figured out how to survive. No, and no. that's exactly what the birds have done. Mm-hmm. Right, but we haven't figured out exactly how. But the weather doesn't affect us like it does the birds. Mm-hmm. Well, th- those aren't well, the only we have birds shelter. that do this. No, no. There's uh, that's how, we, that's there's, how we figured out how to survive. Yeah, there's other birds, migratory birds that do this. There's the golden-winged warblers mm-hmm. that breed up in the mountains of north, northeast Tennessee. And there's a recorded incident where they had come in to migrate for their migration. That's where they breed. 
And immediately after they got there, they left. 24 hours later, a supercell came through Tennessee and dropped 84 tornadoes. This was like 24 hours in advance? Yeah. See, stuff like that, I'm like, okay, they sensed yeah. something, and we don't have the instruments that um, <clears throat> that are tuned in to for the sake of our survival. Although, in that case, that would have been nice mm-hmm. to have that, <laughs> that whatever they have to, to sense that's coming. But 24 hours in advance, you can kind of write it off as... You know, all right, there was there was something in the air that they picked up on in real time. But in this case, I mean, they're predicting th- this is a very it's very complicated. Yes, it's very advanced equation, the, regardless of whatever information they're using to crunch these numbers. This is this is a very complicated uh, equation that they're running and then using it as a predictor. And then they're so sure about it that they're willing to cut their breeding cycle, which for a biological creature, that's, that's a really serious deal to intentionally not have as many babies this year. How, how wide is the, how wide is the breeding range as far as their, you know, habitat and where they're breeding? How wide is that? Is it like, as far as, is it small pods of birds that this guy was watching, or is it he a greater was, population? Is he watching one specific pod of these veery thrush, or is I, it? I, I don't know. Uh, the ones he studied were in were out of Delaware, mm-hmm. yeah, but the the thrushes can be but found. The, yeah, they can be found broadly through like yeah. Yeah, we, Baltimore and but the, but but even but even you know he's studying these, but you know, the, you know the, he's studying this little Delaware pod, and but I'm sure there's more than you know. Oh sure, obviously. I mean, we so, but but all but all of them are leaving, no matter if not just the Delaware thrush, they the, all leave at the, the New same Jersey time. thrush and the North Carolina veery thrush. That that's what, you know, all of them from the scale of the East Coast all leave at the same time. Yeah, well, that's what I was. That's kind of what I was getting to. Where it's like, if you think about the individual intelligence of one of these birds, it's it's very very low. But if you had a communication network or a way of sharing information between all of these birds and the species, that it could be that the sum of their intelligence is greater than the, the sum of its parts, yeah. which is something it, that's something we've kind of talked about in here before. Yeah. Um, so apparently they have ways of, of, you know, communicating that we don't fully understand. And there's something going on with their collective where they're able to figure this stuff out more accurately than we as a species are able to. They're, they're beating us. They're better at it than we are. Yep. And that's wild for a tiny little, tiny little bird. Yeah, you're talking like a collective consciousness. Right. One of the whole I'm thinking of it you know, from a scientific standpoint. If I'm trying to figure out how they're doing it, I'm going to figure out how they're not doing it. And first of all, they're not doing it by any changes of temperature or barometric pressure, because those things will change 100 times between now and then. What will change more slowly would have to be like electromagnetic fields. Some, yeah. I mean, they're, they're, they're keyed into whatever is creating the storm, the storm cells, cells. Long distance away. and They're not reacting to storm cells. Yeah. They're, they're, they're tuned into whatever is creating, creating the storm cells. Yeah. Which has to be something electromagnetic. That's that's fine. So you've got the instruments that's picking these things up, but then you've also got to have a a long list of past events to to compare it against. So yeah. that when you but get this, that the, reading, this is the threshold. You yeah. know what? Because you can yeah. get the reading, but you also have to have something the, the history it of too. it to to know what that reading means historically, to know what it most likely is going to mean now in the present. So. They're, they've got this record apparently that's kept, and I mean, apparently it's just encoded into their into their DNA, DNA in a way that we don't sort, understand. Yeah. yeah. Um, the same way you have dogs that are uh, of a certain breed that are born knowing how to do whatever that breed of dog is known knowing for, knowing how to point, knowing how to herd, knowing how to yeah, whatever it is. Yeah, they just seem to know it right out of the box, or a, you know, a kid being afraid of the dark, or a lot of animals react to earthquakes too. Earthquakes. Yeah. Yeah. They can, yeah. All right. That's, uh, that's going to do it for our segment number one on the Veery Thrush. Hope you learned something. That was a, that was a really interesting one, Steve. I had never heard of that until you brought it to my attention. And for people that want to read more about this, um, the, the actual uh, journal that published it is, uh, let's see, it's on, it's on nature.com. And again, the name was Christopher M. 
Heckscher. And uh, it's the, the title of the article is, uh, it's, it's a mouthful. It's a Nearctic Neotropical Migratory Songbirds Nesting Phenology and Clutch Size are Predictors of Accumulated Cyclone Energy. So have fun with that. Um, but it is there if you want to know. And this is, uh, this is peer-reviewed, and nobody's really pushed back against this. This guy this guy's a legit scientist, and he, he really did his homework. And again, it was a, a 20-year study. So uh, that's going to do it. Let's jump into part two, the war on drugs, mm -hmm. after a quick commercial break. Are you fucking Einstein? And we're back. Part two, the war on drugs. It's what we're going to be talking about here today. Um, so kind of uh, how I set it up in the beginning, beginning of the show, about 100 years ago, something happened. There was a time, in, even in American history, when your great-grandparents could walk into a pharmacy and buy a container of heroin if they wanted to. Mm -hmm. um, it really changes the weight of the old stories of uh, your grandparents walking up uphill both ways to school yeah. in the snow, right? It's like, yeah. It made I mean, a little difference when their Coca-Cola had real cocaine in it. No kidding. Have you ever seen the old like pictures of uh, like cough syrup? Yes. What used to be yeah. in those things? Yeah. Just open. Oh my syrup. God. Yeah. 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 I, you might still have a cough, but you're not going to know you it. You won't care. I promise. <laughs> you won't feel your face. Yeah. So anyway, all right. So, so what happened? What happened here? Um, was it that uh, society was starting to starting to go downhill and people were becoming it, it, actually the way that we think of the war on drugs playing out and how things got to be where they are is actually a lot like how things were with alcohol use mm -hmm. prior to prohibition. The idea of like um, fathers abandoning their families and spending all their times in the saloons and being passed out in the gutter. And then you had the, the women's temperance movement that kind of came along and you had a society of people that were more, uh, had more like Puritan values and wanted to get uh, rid society of all that. So they came up with a, what they felt like was a noble pursuit of prohibition and it didn't go so well. People don't like it when you take away their alcohol. No. And they fought back and they just, you know, did it anyway. And out of prohibition, we get a lot of organized crime, um, a lot of crime syndicates. And we also get uh, NASCAR. So it wasn't all bad. Wasn't all bad. <laughs> they, uh, so anyway. It, but a lot of that organized crime still around. The same syndicates. Well, yeah, because yeah. We, 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 keep them, we keep them in business by um, outlawing illegal. things and helping them corner the market on things that they can then yeah. set the price whatever they want, uh, step on the product and make it um, you know, impure and, and cause people to overdose and mm -hmm. kill themselves when all they wanted was you know, a, a certain dosage of a certain substance, but they can't get that because they don't know what the hell they're buying or where the hell it came from. Right. There's no regulation. Yeah. So anyway, you've got um, you got the post post Civil War Reconstruction. It's kind of kind of how this goes. You you got the Civil War, and then afterwards you got the era of Reconstruction, and this is like the end of the eighteen hundreds. Then we're coming into we're coming into the nineteen hundreds, and you've got a real you got a lot of really pissed off minority groups, and uh, for pretty good reason. They've, they've fair been, enough, right? Yeah, honestly, if you look at if you look at what a lot of these people were subjected to it, it's honestly kind of a wonder that it wasn't worse than it was that they weren't more violent but for there, there was so there's this kind of this combination of you had a bunch of white people that were kind of in control of things and there there's there a little bit of guilt there um understandably and there was also a lot of pissed off minorities and there was some violence going on and you've got a situation where you start frame it, it, there, there was this narrative that came out around that time. And it's interesting when, when you look back at, at the documents and the memos and um, what people were saying in the media, you would think that it would be things along the lines of like with the prohibition movement at the beginning, where it's like, we don't want kids getting addicted to drugs. We don't want anyone getting addicted to drugs that doesn't want to be. And, if that really were the reason, it would be kind of understandable. And a lot of people that are against uh, legalization of drugs today, those are the reasons they cite. And those are valid. I think that probably everyone has that concern to some degree. 
But there comes a point where the cure is worse than the disease. And when you have, you know, a hundred year span of things getting progressively worse and no progress, I mean, does anyone feel like we have any hope of quote unquote winning the war on drugs? Nope. Not a chance. So anyway, you've you've got these people that there you start you start getting a bunch of really racist propaganda. And the guy that was at the head of this was Henry Anslinger. And this is a name that most people probably haven't heard of. I hadn't heard his name, honestly, until about a week ago. Uh, did anybody have any clue, like, who this guy was or where he came from? I mean, is that like a, that's not a common historical no, it's, it's figure. Not, no, no. That name doesn't really ring out when, when you say it to people, which, which I, I find interesting. It, it's kind of like the Jolly West thing, um, Colonel Jolly and West who is a really major influential person in American history and your average person's never heard of him. This guy was so he, even by extreme racist in like the 1930s, this guy was considered to be an extreme racist. He, he would use, he used the N word in memos so often that the Senator from his own state felt like he should have to step down. Even he in the in the 1930s felt like, okay, man, this is a bit much. But basically, what they were saying is, you know, these black people on cocaine are, are they're hard to kill, and they're gonna they're gonna rape our women, they're going to assault our sons and daughters, they're going to uh, it, the police during this time increased the caliber size caliber of their uh, of their bullets yeah. in their service weapons because they wanted to be able to take out the cocaine fueled black man mm-hmm. that's you know that's angry at the world then on the west coast you had a bunch of uh, chinese immigrants the ones that built the railroads and and other things that they they also were kind of looked down upon um they were there. There were actually mass lynchings in Los Angeles. You don't hear about this, but there were mass lynchings of Chinese people in L.A. at this time. And you also had um, a lot of uh, like Chinatown in San Francisco. A lot of people in Chinatown just kind of grew up all of a sudden. And the people in that area wanted these people gone and actually went so far as to try to move them or relocate them to an area that was previously designated only for hog farms. And they told the people like, this is your land. Now they tried to do basically what they did to the native Americans. It was like, this is your reservation. Go there. And the, the Chinese folks in in Chinatown, they took it all the way to the uh, Supreme court in California and they, they did win. And they were told that they could not, you can't just uproot these people and tell them to move to this undesirable area and then take over their land. Like we're, we're not, we're not going to let this uh, stand. So it became a question. How do we get these Chinese folks? And, and, and how do we, how do we protect ourselves against these angry black men? And the answer was the war on drugs. The Chinese had opium dens. So opium dens up to that point hadn't been a problem. Nobody really seemed to care. And uh, there were heroin addicts, and those addicts could go to the doctor and they would figure out a dose and they would, anytime they needed it, they would just go to the doctor. The doctor would write him a prescription. They would go to the pharmacy and they'd pick up their heroin and they would just, they would do or whatever their drug of choice was. And that was the way that it was. And it really didn't become a problem until people wanted to get rid of certain minority groups. So they, they start going after, and Henry Anslinger was led the charge on, um, on on the war on drugs but the thing was california was one of the last states to make that there was initially when the laws were written they were written with loopholes so that it didn't include addicts so if you were diagnosed as an addict in the early days of the war on drugs you were still able to get your drug you just had to go through a doctor but then gradually state by state they started removing that. And California was one of the last remaining holdouts that said, no, you know, the, the doctors are doing good work for their patients. We don't want to see what this is going to look like if we pull the rug out from under these people. We think that it's going to be worse than it is now if we try to do this. So and the only one of the only ways that California actually got this through was the Chinese cartels campaign for it. They wanted it to be made illegal. Because they saw Nevada 
had already made it illegal and they saw how much money the illegal crime families and the entities, the, the organized crime entities, how much money they were making. They had completely cornered the market at that point. They could set prices, whatever they wanted. They could put out whatever they could put out an inferior product. It didn't matter. And so they were just making money hand over fist. And the crime lords in, in California were like, well, damn, we want, we want in on that. And so California eventually gave in and there was, there was kind of a, a, you know, a symbiosis between the, the Puritans that wanted to make everything illegal and the, uh, the crime families. And next thing you know, we have the war on drugs that is still kind of raging on to this day. So. I just, I just learned a lot. Yeah. That, but it, it's just interesting because w- when you think back to, you have this idea of like what, what the war on drugs is and what it was meant to be and, and where it came from and why it's necessary. And then we've got all of these. Uh, so then you, you know, what, what happens when a person goes to, you know, it becomes, becomes addicted to a substance and it's an illegal substance and it doesn't matter whether it's legal or not. And then they start, they get busted one time. Now all of a sudden you're like excommunicated from polite society. You've got a criminal record good luck getting a job. So you're basically removing these people from polite society and from, from the job market and, and putting a, putting a brand on them. That's going to follow them for the rest of their lives. And they can't vote. They can't. Yeah. They, it's, it's a way to, you know, keep, keep you from voting. Um, they take your license or something or something like that. And you don't, you don't get your license back. So then you can't vote or you can't do whatever. But then you've also got the cartels that are in control of the pricing so they can jack the price way up. So now all of a sudden the people, they, they have to get more money. They, they can't get a job, but they need a large amount of money because the drugs are expensive. So then they turn to stealing or, you know, other forms of petty crime to try to get the money to try to get their fix. And then of course you've got the problem with contaminated drugs, which is causing a massive amount of overdoses. I mean, how many, how many overdoses do you think we would have if everyone got exactly what they thought they had and knew how to knew how, what dose they were taking at any given time? Probably none. You can't say none. You would well, still have some. Maybe well, yeah, you, some, you, some morons yeah, going to, you know, you, you I mean, you have, He's going to take 50 milliliters too, instead too of five. Much. Yeah, but. I mean, if you if you have a, a yeah, you know, even if you have it in a dosed form, I mean, you can OD on opiates extremely easy, and that's a controlled pharmaceutical at a set dosage. I mean, it's just a matter of it's possible, it's but po- that it, does eliminate it eliminates it eliminates a lot of it. I agree, but you I've, can't say none. I've I've heard of people overdosing, yeah. um, people that have been clean mm-hmm. and then go back to. So say heroin. Mm-hmm. Well, the heroin has changed, right. and they go back to the same dose they were used to when they quit, and they die from it. Well, the whole thing with the opiate crisis is it started out with doctors overprescribing pain pills because at the behest of the pharmaceutical companies and the the pharmaceutical reps that were coming in, and they get you know a certain amount of percentage. money for every yeah. prescription. Yeah. yeah. Oh, absolutely. So you had this you had this situation where it was like a legal loophole where people were able to do heroin all of a sudden. Mm-hmm. Lots of people were getting prescribed it that didn't need it, but then they were getting refill after refill mm-hmm. after refill. And at a certain point, people realized, hey, this is just legal heroin, and these people are addicted now. We should stop this mm-hmm. and pull the rug out from under them, just like when you know China, China, when California was thinking about you know we we want our doctors to be able to have control over the situation. So they pull the rug out from under these people, and now all of a sudden the doctors are going to jail if they write too many prescriptions, and every they've got someone looking over their shoulder constantly. So it becomes a thing of, I'm sorry, patient, but you're no longer allowed to have this thing that I've gotten you hopelessly addicted to. So naturally, they turn to street dealers, and they, that's when they start doing heroin. Eventually, they get some that's laced with a high amount of fentanyl because some asshole cooking up a batch in the bathtub didn't know what he was doing, and that's how they overdose more times mm-hmm. than not. It is. That's what kills them. But you only have that because all of this stuff is illegal in the first place. 
And now we're just talking about hard drugs and addictive drugs. That's not get, even getting into the question of psychedelics. Yeah, why are they Ill- illegal? It's a great question, Jim. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, does anyone, does anyone have any, I mean, any, you guys want to, I mean, what does the war on drugs mean to you? Where are you guys at on this? I've been talking a lot. I think I think you've created not only a problem in our country, but we've screwed up other entire countries with our war on drugs. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the Mexican cartels have taken over that country, the Colombian cartels. We've screwed up entire other parts of the world, world. <laughs> yeah. by our attempt mm-hmm. to, to try to stop what's happening in our country. And I don't know, I, I'm unaware, is the rest of the world in a war with drugs like we are? Are we the only country that does this? Well, I think uh, when the United States started pushing, all the com- all the countries that were aligned with the United States had to follow the same drug policies. I think uh, we pushed it on the rest oh, of the I'm world. Sure, I'm sure it was some, I mean, I'm, I'm sure it's all built into some sort of yeah, trade if you want our, and Yeah, whatever. if you want our help, you've got yeah. to follow the same laws. Or if we you do. don't want to be tariffed and taxed on imports and whatever, yeah. So uh, Switzerland, not too long ago, legalized heroin. Um, and I, and I, I like to use heroin as an example just because it is, it is so, dist- it's thought of as like the most destructive. We're in the middle of, we just are kind of on the other side of the opiate crisis and not really. I mean, there's still people dropping like flies. I mean, how many celebrities, how many brilliant musicians, people that probably did heroin for most of their lives, but recently they got a bad batch, you know? And it had too much fentanyl. And then, I mean, Scott, you know of some people that have dropped, like major musicians, like famous people, right? Well, Tom Petty. Who have we lost? Uh, Prince. Prince was one. Yeah, and Tom Petty. Uh, Tom Petty. Well, Tom Petty and Prince were on, they weren't on heroin. They were on prescription meds, and their doctors were over-prescribing them a number of different medications. They weren't strictly, they weren't doing illegal substances to per se, yeah, but most the, of the, their problems were, the, the problem, were kind of the same deal with with uh, God. The problem with the opioid thing there is is you get a prescription from the doctor, but you're overtaking them, so you have to buy them on the street because the thirty pills you're given or the sixty pills are going to last you two weeks. Then, then isn't the problem the overtaking? The, the overtaking of them. Well, yeah, it's kind of the progression of the drug, though. But I mean, like, think like where you guys used to live. What was that little town? There was a little town right across the border there in West Virginia, and it was like a town of seventy-six thousand people. But they had in the in what a two-year period because a bunch of pain clinics in West West Virginia town got busted for overwriting scripts, and it was something in the neighborhood seventy-six thousand people in this town, and there were enough prescriptions over a two-year period for every. Uh, Every citizen in the town, man, woman, and child, had seven and a half prescriptions apiece mm-hmm. for pain pills in this one town. Yeah, yeah. It's, it, which is insane. And and I, I mean, I want to be clear. Like, I'm not advocating for like the full on libertarian wild you're, west. You're not going the uh, go the, nuts. The, 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 is it Portland? Is it Portland or Seattle that just legalized everything? De- decriminalized and legalized like, the entire state was of it, Oregon. Was it Oregon? Oregon. The whole, the whole yeah. state of Oregon. Which that'll be a fascinating yeah, case it'll be, study. It'll be something interesting to watch. Right. And, and Colorado has been interesting mm-hmm. to watch. But uh, Switzerland. So 20 years ago, they started a program where they legalized heroin. And when you start with the program, you set your own dose and you can stay on that dose for as long as you want. There's never any pressure to stop. And it's been running for 20 years. So you could do it for your whole life if you wanted to. You could just you just carry on with it. And it's interesting because there's almost nobody on the program now that was on it at the start 20 years ago because the clinic also supports you with housing. They help you look for a job. So the majority of people, they, they get their jobs, they get their homes and they just entirely, they they just choose to gradually wean off of it to, to lower the dose, you know, gradually. And then eventually they go on to lead fairly normal lives and and there there is that path that you know many people have have gone through and the sad thing is is just that that's just not available 
for people. And, but again, I, that, I, I think I think you might have just answered your question as to why this stuff's illegal. Why is that? Because because in the long run, it isn't something that is normal to lead a productive life. Well, yeah, but neither is a lot of things that people do. Neither, neither is eating McDonald's. You're still talking about alcohol. You're talking about recreational. Oh yeah, you know what I mean. All of it, all of what you're talking about. Why is the illegal? Why is the recreational part of it illegal? Well, I mean, you, because you the get, recreational part sketchy you when you're getting a job. Well, exactly. But if it wasn't illegal, then it wouldn't stop you from getting a job, even if you have a little bit of heroin in your system. It wouldn't matter. I mean, unless you're that's there's only probably certain. Testing. I mean, there I don't. Are I don't want my airline pilot exactly you know, that should be well. There you go. Well, there you go. Free. Yeah. If, it, if it wasn't if it wasn't illegal, then that's what you might get. Well, no, you can still have, because you can still have employers that say, you but know, it's not if, illegal, right? But you can still, there are substances, then, they, then they're subject to a lawsuit. Like if a doctor, no, if a doctor, I'm sorry, not well, a doctor or, or a teacher comes into work with bourbon on their breath, you will get fired, even though it's perfectly legal to drink bourbon, right? True. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It happens. It happens every day. I think um, I think that only would only apply if it if they were caught. You see right, what I mean? Yeah. Because, and they, they would get caught not necessarily for the smell, but for their actions. Or for yeah, for uh, nodding off. Like yeah, so, or, if, you're, if you're stumbling down the hallway, if your preschool teacher is stumbling down the hallway, yeah, not nodding off, or yelling, and the, the principal notices, well, then yeah, that's that's uh, a problem. The, you know, I think there's an OSHA statistic that came out not terribly long ago. It's been pretty prevalent, I think, over the course of it. That most uh, most. Uh, for drug testing on work sites, most drug testing violations are found when there is an accident, not during a right. random screening. Right. Right. Well, right. So, so it's mean, not, they're not just finding you randomly. They're finding you when you and most, um, cut your finger and, off and at or least you the, drop something on somebody and it, you fuck up and it's because you're... The industry that I, that I yeah. work in, if you have an accident of any kind... That's the first thing that happens. The first thing they yeah. do is they send you to get a drug yeah. test. But then you've also got people like Professor Carl Hart... At um, do you know what university teaches uh, at Harvard? Is it Harvard? Okay, um, who's an advocate of you know legalizing all drugs, and he personally snorts heroin mm-hmm. and is very open about it. Now he doesn't do it right before class, but in his Why private time, Why doesn't he? Because he doesn't like he well, because he it affects actually, his brain in a way that doesn't allow him to do his job effectively. So he just decides not to. Another but, reason why why it should be illegal. No, because he can do it when he gets home, he can and do he's it fine. Just like, he can well, do it actually, when he gets home at actually, the end of the day, just like he but, takes. He, but not everybody. Cocktails. Not everybody not has everybody that. Is the same way has that. Um, well, has that willpower? But he, he's he's some uh, people have addictive personalities, and they just can't handle it. They yeah, do, the really which is why the part about all of this, though, right, is that. We we're basing part of our judgment over what we hear from the news media and the government based on their statistical analysis of who's doing drugs and where and when. Yeah. The real part of that is that there's a big majority. I mean, not it's not the, a majority of Americans. There's a chunk of but people. But there's a chunk of people in mm-hmm. America yeah. who are using every day and in, in going to work using drugs, being productive about it, leading perfectly normal lives, and you wouldn't even know that they were either uh, doing heroin every day or snorting coke every day. I mean, you go back to the 80s. In most of the big cities, 25% of the population was doing coke on a daily basis. How many people... 70% of Wall Street was... I was going to say, yeah. Today, how many people on Wall Street do you think are on uppers, regardless of whether or not it's a prescription or... That, I would say, the majority... And the thing with Carl Hart, you don't think Trump was on something? You don't think, well, you don't think they're shooting Biden up before every speech with something? But the thing with Carl Hart, he was going to the countries where the stuff was produced. He was going to the source because he's got a PhD, I think, in chemistry or molecular biology. He studies drugs Mm -hmm. and he goes to the source to get the pure stuff. He doesn't buy anything off the streets here. Right. Well, and, 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 not every, and, and not everybody has that ability. Yeah, exactly. He, he can do it because he's wealthy and he can buy a testing kit. Well, and he's also that's what he does. That's what his whole job is. Yeah. You know, so he like he can actually drugs. he can actually analyze it under a microscope and tell you if it's what it's supposed to be. You but know? you know, I got another he's question. Get, he's getting Travis. for uh, analysis. Are there and, groups uh, of people scientific that are, study? Are there groups of people who are making money on the war on drugs? 
Uh, Getting you, filthy oh, rich? Yeah. Oh, yes. Well, that's probably where we need to be going. Our, our, the cartels and our intelligence agencies. <laughs> right. But, uh, but the pharmaceuticals. Pharmaceutical companies, yeah, because yeah. they have a they have and, and they're some degree of monopoly. But yeah. you know that stuff has to, that that has to exist. I mean, and, and even if we legalize drugs, the the pharmaceutical companies are going to get rich off of that. But the point is, you can set up clinics like they did in Switzerland, where they say, okay, this is your dose. This is what you can have, and if you, you can have this dose this often for the rest of your life if you want it but you, we're not just going to sit here and give you a blank prescription pad and let you just go you know oh, well, way off the rails with well, it well i mean we did that here with the with the methadone clinics yeah is that instead of giving people heroin and re- and re- good grade heroin and limiting their dose on it we we're giving them methadone which is as addictive as heroin and or, worse, or worse and 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 worse for your health in that it's a synthetic with god knows what they were putting in it they... and a crazy thing about methadone clinics i've seen i know people that are around here that have they've gone to them and they go to them with their child in the fucking car with them go to the methadone clinic get their treatment and with their kid with them and then get back in the car put their kid in the baby seat and drive home from the methadone clinic which and is which is which is, is more addictive which is crazy, than heroin, which is crazy. But I mean, there's I mean, in the United States, there's you know, New York City's had a long history of the of the uh, what the shape the, the safe shooting clinics and you know the needle mm-hmm. exchanges. Uh, Portland has a long you know there's you know, San Francisco, L.A. There's long histories of those. What are the statistics on those? As far but they're, as they're, they're not giving you the far, drug though. I think no, they're but they're but they're, pro- but they're providing you with a safe space. Right, yeah, right. and and they've at least and got you're not s- doing it in public open, and you're not getting busted for doing it on the getting busted in the alley, and you're not doing it with a dirty needle, and you're not getting Hep C when you're doing it because you're doing it with something. But it's to, but what are what is the what are the statistics of relevancy towards the help of those type things yeah those, I, I would imagine it's aid? well there's got to be some degree of help there just for the simple fact that if you're worried about do if you're worried about shooting up and then passing out mm-hmm. and and a cop walking by and seeing you in your car you're gonna get arrested yeah. you're gonna get arrested so you have to go somewhere where you're isolated and alone where nobody can see you and then if you overdose well you're dead tough mm-hmm. shit nobody's gonna find mm-hmm. you until you know you start stinking mm-hmm. And, they, um, and those places, they again, they give you pla- they give you a place to shoot. So for the simple fact of like there is eyes on you, so that if you do overdose, they can they can wake you back up. But, that, you know, that'll I, save I your life. But yeah, I just don't. I'm I'm not. I don't know. But that's I, a band aid on the problem. It I is. Mean, the, it is. And I'm not sure that you know. I I don't know. I don't have any scientific or any reading into it. But that's always one of those programs that I've never really. I don't see the benefit of them. I don't see how it helps the situation. It, for as long as the the drugs are still illegal and still being provided by criminals, it, it yeah, how does it help? It really, yeah, it doesn't. It's 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 a it's a band aid on the problem. But uh, that's you know, again, up to this point, we've just been talking about the hard drugs. Let's talk about psychedelics. Nobody gets addicted to psychedelics that I know of. It's not an addictive substance. Well, some even call it the anti drug. Well, they're using it. To get they're using. They're using it for other drugs. They're using. Yeah. yeah, they're using psilocybin to treat people with um, severe depression and drug addiction. They're using MDMA to treat people with PTSD. They're using um, LSD and things like uh, ketamine to treat people with uh, addiction and anxiety and, and other things. Um, and, and there's been a lot of a lot of positive results, and we've already kind of touched on the uh the 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 role that psychedelic drugs might have had in like early humans uh early religion um and so it it becomes a it's an interesting question when you start talking about those substances substances because it's like why the hell are those illegal Mm -hmm. because even if you're coming from a place of well i don't want people to get addicted and i don't want people to die well, then we should be banning a lot of things that are legal. We should probably ban cigarettes before we ban shrooms, mm-hmm. right? Psilocybin 100%. mushrooms. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's like, and, and the, uh, the interview that uh, Rogan did with uh, Brian Marescu, who wrote The Immortality Key, he also had Graham Hancock on. And Graham Hancock is a great resource um, if you want to listen to 
the reasons that psychedelics should be legal, he, he frames the argument in, in a way that, that I loved. Um, he, he basically said that this isn't a war on drugs. This is a war on consciousness. He was coming at it from a place of the, the alert problem-solving state of consciousness has been given a monopoly on consciousness like as a society we've given that alert problem solving state of consciousness we've given it a a monopoly position over all the other states of consciousness and what psychedelics do is they they undermine the problem the the alert problem solving state of consciousness and show us a, a much wider range of consciousness that is available to us using natural plants and and natural chemical compounds that can be found just basically growing out of the ground. So he, he, what he says is that they're, they are, they're viewed as like an insidious and dangerous thing to the, the, the powers that be the ones that are trying to control the narrative and program people to behave and think in certain ways and that they, they don't want people thinking for themselves they, they don't want their propaganda basically just being washed away by a mushroom trip or some other psychedelic. And the majority of people don't realize that that's what most of what they've heard about psychedelics is it, what it amounts to is basically propaganda. And we covered a lot of this when we talked about the Manson murders. It, it, was, it was a similar thing. That really, that really in the 60s, that did a number on psychedelics. Because up until then... They weren't a controlled substance. Mm, it right. was, you know, it was something that was just kind of out there, and it, it wasn't until those murders happened that they had a boogeyman that they could pin all of the evils of psychedelics onto. This is the face of what will happen to you if you do these drugs. You're yep. going to go become psychotic and murder people. Yep. So, um, yeah, it, it's I, I, I like that. I like that notion that that it's a war on consciousness and that basically we're all being treated like children because as he put it, if we as adults aren't allowed to make sovereign choices about our bodies and our health, both physical and mental and our own consciousness while doing no harm to anyone else whatsoever, then freedom is a meaningless word. That was his quote at the end of that interview. And I I like that a lot. Mm -hmm. So um, I'm happy to close on that unless you guys have some closing thoughts. All right, this has been the 237 Podcast. Keep it weird, people. Have a good one. See ya. What you just said is one of the most insanely idiotic things I have ever heard. At no point in your rambling, incoherent response were you even close to anything that could be considered a rational thought. Everyone in this room is now dumber for having listened to it. I award you no points... And may God have mercy on your soul.